0: Welcome to The Darkened Hour. Welcome to another episode of The Darkened Hour. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. With me today, a special guest, Adam Taylor. Adam has been researching the events of September 11, 2001, since August of 2007. And from 2010 to 2014, he contributed to the blog Debunking the Debunkers of the 9-11 Truth Movement. He has also contributed technical articles to sites such as ae911truth.org, and scientificmethod911.org. He is the author of the AE 911 Truth multi-part essay, Debunking the Real 911 Myths, Why Popular Mechanics Can't Face Up to Reality. Most recently, he's published a paper on the collapse of the Twin Towers in the April edition of the International Journal of Engineering and Techniques. He also shares the first name of myself, and he studies the opposite. He studies the physics, I studied geopolitics. Adam Taylor, thank you very much for coming on.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Adam.
0: Sure. Um, But, you know, let's start simple. Uh, What made you start getting invested with the September 2001 terrorist attacks to begin with?
1: Yeah. um, So to be clear, when 9-11 happened, I was only like 10. So I could not have started researching the events from the very beginning because there's just no way I could have done that uh what officially piqued my interest was in uh 2007 when uh when i was slipping through tv randomly i came across this documentary on the history channel that was called 9-11 conspiracies fact or fiction and uh you know prior to that i had heard about conspiracies about 9-11 and didn't really give them a lot of credence um but i hadn't really looked into it very much and then seeing this documentary it was, you know, a debunking piece. It was about why these theories aren't true, but at least laid out all these different theories to me, all these different anomalies and problems people had found with the official narrative. And it really piqued my interest. And so I wanted to take a deeper look into it. And so that kind of got me started on researching it. Um, And over the years, I looked more and more into it. Uh, Eventually I got started writing for, the site you mentioned, uh, the 9-11 debunkers blog, because uh, I came across it and thought it was a great site. It was a great research uh, source. And the guy that runs it, uh, my friend, John Michael Talbot, uh, he liked stuff that I was doing. I liked what he was doing. And eventually he asked me if I wanted to come on and, and write for the site. And I said, sure, uh, I'd love to. And uh, yeah, I did a lot of my best work there. Um, you know, at that site, we got to, present the the evidence for the falsity of the official narrative but it was also about critiquing not just what the debunkers were saying but also other truthers because there's a lot of really bad theories about 9-11 out there and one of the key goals of the site really was I think beyond critiquing debunkers it really was to just separate out the good info from the bad you know separate the wheat from the chaff and try to focus on just the best evidence that we could that would potentially get us a new investigation um eventually I, I stopped writing at the blog but i still stayed active in researching 9-11 and since then just kind of been uh you know independent uh, i've been brought on by people like a 9 truth to write certain things and i've volunteered with them but for the most part i've just been kind of doing it independently at this point and just trying to do whatever i can and where i can
0: Sure, you know, we share a lot in common in this regard, because I'm independent, I consider myself independent as well, we start out almost in the same time period 2006 2007. But we went two different directions, you you studied the physics aspect of the World Trade Center towers, I went with the geopolitics involved, like say pre intelligence uh, regarding uh, the CIA, the NSA Israelis and Saudis, and the motivational factors of the people involved with the attacks. Why did you start? What was your background in physics and engineering looking like? Because this is something that you concentrated very fervently on.
1: Well, I'll say I don't really have a science background. I I will admit that, but I have always been uh, a science geek. You know, I find that stuff fascinating, Hmm. and that's kind of what attracted me to that. Because one, I just think science is very fascinating. So this was a very interesting question to look into. You know what really cause these buildings to collapse. And um, I obviously, I've looked into the geopolitical aspect of it too, but I can't say that I'm as well-versed in that as you know people like you and other people in the movement. Um, something about the, the, looking into the science of it was something that I kind of could just grasp a little easier to me. It just came more naturally to me, I guess. Um, and I also understand that in the case of looking into the science behind it, um, science is one of the most, or not the most objective standard of investigation. And I think that looking into that, regardless of what the answer turns out to be, I wanna know what really made these buildings collapse. Um, If it turns out that they did just collapse because of what we were told from the plan impacts and the fires, well then so be it. But I think that's an important piece of the puzzle and it's something that I really wanna get to the bottom of.
0: Right, you know, and we we again we share that same commonality regarding our two specific fields, in that uh, we are looking at it with uh, very careful objectiveness, and uh, we aren't persuaded by our worldviews enough to look at only selective evidence. Um, right. Your your work actually concentrates on the anomalies surrounding world Trade Center Towers one, two, and seven, and what was it? that made you question the collapses from the onset? Was it something that you saw? Was it something that persuaded you uh, in an argument? What was it about it?
1: Well, it actually, some of it goes back to um, that initial History Channel piece that I watched, because I think knowing they collapsed, I didn't, I, I didn't really know much about it. I, you know, I don't know anything about uh, at that point, I didn't know, uh, you know, how buildings were supposed to really collapse if it's due to damage. Um, I didn't know much about demolitions, for example. Um, but I remember one point they made in the History Channel piece. They were talking about the, uh, the, the rate that the towers took to collapse. And the point that people in the truth movement in that piece were making is that these buildings collapsed too quickly, uh, in their view to be explained by just fire and gravity, and that was something that hadn't really occurred to me because I thought, oh, maybe they did collapse too fast for that to, to be the explanation. Um, I didn't really know, but they were you know, basically making the case that, yeah, it, these buildings seem like they came down in time intervals that you would expect from demolition, not from fire and gravity. And in the piece, the answer they gave to that was, well, you know, buildings that are brought down with demolition, they don't start from the top, they start from the bottom. And so they can't be demolitions and the first thought i had and you got to keep in mind this is still when i was totally new to this i didn't have an opinion one way or the other i wasn't uh, a truther or anything i was looking at this as a fence sitter. the first thought i had was well wait a minute that doesn't help to explain how they fell as quickly as they did you know that doesn't fix the problem if anything it makes it worse because they started from the top and they still fell in time intervals consistent with buildings brought down and demolition, that's actually sounds like a more uh, anomalous thing. Like how could they have fallen that quickly if the upper sections have to force down all this uh, mass below them? If it starts at the bottom, I can kind of see why it would fall that quickly, but not if the upper sections have to crush all this structure below. So that kind of you know, was a red flag for me and kind of got me thinking like, well, that's really weird. I don't think that really answers the question. It sounds like there is still a question here about how they fell as quickly as they did.
0: Right. You know, in, in, um, there was a paper published in April of 2009, uh, in which a team of scientists published a paper called Active Thermi- uh, Thermitic Material Discovered in Dust from the 9-11 World Trade Center Catastrophe. Um, it's a very infamous paper. Could you tell us about the findings in this paper and who was behind it?
1: Yeah, um, so the paper is, uh, the lead author is uh, Dr. Niels Herrett, uh, a chemist and other authors on it are people like Stephen Jones. Um, And what they do is in that paper, they document the finding of what they say are uh, pieces of active thermetic material. Um, They uh, identify it as a form of thermite called nanothermite. And it was recovered from uh, dust samples they got from people who actually collected dust uh, from ground zero Uh, after the collapses, uh, in some cases very soon after the collapses, like only like 20 minutes after they they came down. Um, And they identified these these red gray chips they found in the dust as being uh, explosive thermitic material, uh, which really should not be there. I mean, there's no reason for this type of material to be in the dust in the World Trade Center. Um, And so they would say that that calls for further investigation as to how that stuff got there.
0: Yeah. Now, where did it, by the way, just a follow up to that, where did they get the dust samples from?
1: Um, Well, like I said, I I don't remember the exact locations. I'd have to go back and read the paper. But um, it uh, they got them from people who basically just, you know, collected the dust that were there. I know one sample came from uh, a woman named Jeanette McKinley um, and a few others. They worked with a total of, I think, four dust samples uh, that they got from people. And it was kind of just like a a call for people to send them in. You know, they were saying if people have dust samples, we would like to study them. If you have them, please send them in Um, and and they were able to uh, verify that they did get them from ground zero. Um, It's not like they just got random dust from people. They were able to uh, verify that this was ground zero samples. So as they go into their paper, they do uh, talk about how they were able to verify that, uh, you know, that the chain of custody was accurate and where they got these samples from.
0: All right. Let let me play devil's advocate if I dare here. Uh, Okay. I'll try the best I can. In in 2012, there was a microscopy consulting firm called um, MVA Scientific Consultants, uh, which is from Duluth, Georgia, and they released a study. Of these chips collected from the World Trade Center dust. And they've, they said that there was no evidence of individual elemental aluminum particles that you would expect to see from a thermite burn, and that they said that the red gray chips found in the World Trade Center dust at four sites in New York City are consistent with a carbon steel coated with an epoxy resin that contains primarily iron oxide and kaolin clay pigments. Uh, what would be your response to this finding?
1: Um, well, I understand there's some dispute over that. One thing I will say about that report that was commissioned um, is, I believe uh, it's uh, James Millett was yes. the man who, who wrote that. Um, it was a little strange because originally that report he put together was going to be submitted for peer review in the same way that the active through material paper was. Uh, it never was for some reason. I'm, I'm not sure why it was never submitted to peer review. Um, What I would say about his report, uh, there was actually a good uh, summary uh, rebuttal, or at least part of it's a rebuttal to that paper that was put together by uh, my friend, John Michael Talbot and another contributor to the debunker site for a while, uh, Ziggy Zugum, that uh, goes into uh, this material. I mean, I can actually pull up uh, the paper itself that they put together. And they have a section talking about all the flaws with James Millett's, um paper. If you, if anybody listening wants to find that, um, if they go to uh, my old blog that I have, uh, the web address is adamtaylor42.blogspot.com. In the sidebar, if you go down, there is a paper, their paper is posted there as one of the links. It's titled 9-11 Explosive Material in the World Trade Center Dust by John Michael Talbot and Ziggy Zogum. Um, and it pretty much goes into all the different responses to uh, debunkers who try to say that this material is not active thermetic material. Um, page 13 deals with Dr. Millette's paper and then uh, page 18 actually goes into uh, the issue of the elemental aluminum that supposedly wasn't found uh, in, these, uh, in these chips.
0: You know what? Afterwards, uh, share me that blog link and I'll post it in the description, if you will, for, for sure people to obtain it. All right. Yes. So. All right. So give me your best scenario, if you will, regarding how much of the World Trade Center's towers one and two, because they're the tallest buildings, how much would have to be compromised and how was thermometer on all the floors? Was it in half the building and how could it be applied and who you believe could have pulled this off without being seen by anyone working in the building?
1: Sure. So I can go into a little bit of how I think the demolitions were carried out. Now, I can only say this from my own observations and my own speculation. Right. I don't know for a fact this is actually how it was done, right. um, but I do, this is how I likely think it was done. So um, I break a little bit from what I think some people in the movement think happened in terms of how the explosives were used in the buildings. Uh, A lot of people think that the explosives were used to cut through the columns in the same way that you would see in a traditional demolition. Uh, I'm sure many people are familiar with that infamous cut column photo at ground zero that's got that diagonal cut. Uh, For the record, um, that was not cut by explosives or thermite or anything. I've felt this way for a long time. I've made the case to people that that was not, it was cut by the cleanup workers. Um, what I think happened, I, I go along with a, a theory of demolition that was put forth back in 2007 by uh, Gordon Ross, a mechanical engineer, that the explosives were most likely placed on the weld connections between columns on the floors. That what the explosives actually did was they were used to break the weld connections between columns where they were connected um and doing so has a number of advantages for one thing you would only therefore have to load not every floor but only every third floor because we know from the limited uh construction documents that have been released uh the core columns were welded at every third floor in the towers and so you would only really have to load at most like only one third of each tower with explosives um and another part of the reason i think that is that if you look at a lot of the columns in the debris or in the, you know, in the debris pile at ground zero, they have the characteristics that look as though they were attacked by explosives. Um, there's another paper that I wrote uh, also at my blog that's titled Collapse or Explosion. And in part of that, I go into this uh, theory that if you had explosives placed that way, when they went off, it would affect the columns in a way that you'd get these like, uh concave ends that the columns would be like pushed inwards at just the ends of them um and you'd have column ends that also look like they were you know discolored oxidized possibly in some in some places and i also give uh in the appendices of that paper uh photographs many photographs of columns that look like they were affected in exactly this way um you need to obviously be able to look at them more closely to be sure that they were uh, affected by explosives. But the damage is consistent with that scenario. So that's what I think happened. Now, in terms of which columns were actually loaded, this is also something that Gordon Ross uh, talked about. Um, I think that only the uh, the 24 outer core columns of the towers were affected because the core the core of each tower was comprised of 47 inner core columns but those, that core itself was made up of 24 outer core columns and then 23 inner core columns. Um, and I think it was only the outer 24 core, core columns that they affected um, because one, those were the columns that the floors were directly connected to. So if you took out those columns, that's what would cause the floors to collapse and that would destroy the, the building's internal stability. And then the only perimeter columns that were affected were the corner perimeter columns. Like the only the, if you cut the corners of the perimeter of each tower, that will destroy the external stability of the towers. And it'll cause the walls to just peel out, which if you look at the debris map after the, the collapses, that's exactly what happened. Um, and that's also part of the reason why you see after the, like during the collapse, you see like portions of the cores standing. I think those were only the 23 inner core columns. Uh, Gordon Ross did a a dimensional analysis of the the core of the South Tower after it collapsed and found that the width of it actually matches the width that you would see from just the 24 uh, inner core columns. So that's the way I think they did it. I think they took out uh, the outer 24 core columns um, every third floor, and then they cut the perimeter of, uh, cut the corners of the perimeters to get the walls to peel out like they did.
0: Just to touch on that uh, speculation, uh... Who would, who would be uh, qualified to pull that off, protect, uh, skilled to pull that off?
1: Well, and again, and this gets into a lot more speculation, this is kind of yeah, sure. uh, you know, an area that we really, really can't know for sure until we get a new investigation. Um, I know there is uh, anecdotal evidence that there was um, work being done on the elevators before mm-hmm. the attacks, uh, Ace Elevator Company, had done work, this huge elevator modernization uh, in the towers in the nine months leading up to the attacks. Um, And if you had access to the core columns, or sorry, if you had access to the elevators, you could gain access to the core columns because the elevators were uh, adjacent to the core columns. Um, You could be deep in the towers uh, and there was also no cameras in the elevator shafts. So it's not like you would be seen by those if you were working in there.
0: Right. You know, you know, this leads into uh, another area that I studied about Denko Mechanical, uh, which was a offshoot plumbing and heating company, which uh, existed in a person's residence. Uh, So it was like almost like a fictitious company. Um, For those who don't know, it's about the story of Catherine Smith, the Tennessee um, employee of the, uh, the uh, DMV, in which she uh, was giving fraudulent IDs to a, a bunch of individuals from uh, Jordan and Israel to work uh, inside the United States. And when they were arrested in this FBI sting relating to the fake IDs, it uh, was found out that one individual uh, was holding a World Trade Center pass. And it was dated September 6, 2001, in which he said that he worked for Denko Mechanical, which was a plumbing and heating company. And when they, when they went to the Port Authority, who's the owner of the World Trade Center, they actually said that they had no records of Denko Mechanical. So who knows what could have went on in the elevator shafts with Ace, Ace Elevator, and who knows could have been, um, that could have been the uh, uh, subverting the, uh, the plumbing in regards to uh, the bottom of the World Trade Center. Uh, so I mean, speculations abound here, but they're not irrational speculation. There's rational And irrational speculation. Um, Right. I mean,
1: we we lack a lot of information we'd need to draw that with any kind of draw those conclusions with certainty. And I think that we would have to probably accept that until we would get a new investigation, we probably won't know, you know, like 90% of what actually did happen. But I do think we can at least reconstruct some of it um by looking at things like the records of who had access to the towers and also looking at the state of the debris uh, after the collapse is to try to get an idea of, of how they might have collapsed.
0: Yeah, and this is the information that we're trying to receive. And by the way, the, the name of the individual I had to pass is Sakir Hamad, who went by the nickname Rocky. Mm-hmm. Um, but to also, you know, just to touch on this, because you touched on this a little bit, and I wanted to get your thoughts on it. It's an infamous video. It was an interview done in September 2006, and you're well aware of it. Danny Joenko, who's a Dutch demolition manager, he was interviewed about his opinions regarding how the towers collapsed. And he claims that World Trade Center 1 and 2 were not, as they stated, as he claims that they start at the bottom, but you know, not at the top. But he had some reservations, however, with World Trade Center 7, stating that this is exactly what a demolition collapse would look like. Yet when he was informed about this, that the same building uh, that collapsed on September 11, 2001, he stated it wouldn't be impossible, but it would be very hard. And he drew out this area where their heart would be, where they needed to compromise. I'd like to get your thoughts on the summation that he made here.
1: Yeah, um, I am familiar with that. I I did see that. Um, And I think that, uh, I mean, I think his opinion on the tower should be considered, although it's important to remember that he went into it knowing what happened to the buildings and the fact that Uh, even though I do think they were demolished, they certainly don't look like traditional demolitions. I mean, I will grant that. They definitely don't look like, I think, really any demolition that's been carried out before. So I kind of get how that might, even somebody in the field of that, not to think they're actually demolitions. But, you know, then they showed him Building 7 Collapse, not telling him what it was, just to get his opinion on the collapse overall. And yeah, he said, oh, well, yeah, of course that was a demolition. And then, yeah, like you said, when they told him that it was also on 9-11, he couldn't believe it. It's like, wait, really? Yeah. Um, and in his opinion, uh, when they talked to him about it, uh, yeah, he felt like it wasn't impossible that they could have uh, brought the building down. Now, my understanding is that his personal opinion is he thought they demolished buildings up, Building 7 for safety reasons, I don't think he thought there was a a real conspiracy behind it. He thought they probably brought it down for like safety concerns. Um, But he was actually, and it's important to remember too, that he was contacted even after that interview and was asked if his opinion had changed. And he said, no, he said that he looked at the drawings, the construction, people sent him other videos from different angles. And he still said, no, that was a a demolition. I still think that definitely was a demolition. Um, So I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't want to I don't think whether or not that building was demolished is going to rest on just his word alone. We have to look at the science behind it. But it is interesting when you get uh, a real unbiased opinion from somebody who's an expert in the field. I think that's definitely worth considering.
0: Yeah. And, you know, we agree with this. So, so this is something that I've always wanted to entertain is that I would love to get somebody from the demolition industry mm-hmm who is not invested with the, the debunking or the truthing of 9-11, uh, the 9-11 movement. And, and to get somebody to look at uh, either the blueprints or the outlines or videos of the World Trade Centers uh, on September 11, 2001, to get his estimation about what, what uh, appeared to have happened. But um, like, I, I and this is something that I wish uh, architects and engineers could have pushed a little bit more. Instead of just concentrating on just droning on about World Trade Center Seven for so long, is that they should have tried a little bit more? And this is just my opinion, but I think they should have tried a little bit more to get the opinions of other people in the demolition industry. Um, I know they have Tom Spellman, and if I'm correct, if I'm correct, he's a former S- demolition. Sullivan.
1: Sullivan. Yeah, Tom. Tom uh, Sullivan. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, I wish they could have got more people from his background. Would, would you? Would that be something that you'd be uh, agreeing to?
1: I would. I I think they do have a few more people in the group who might not be like strictly building demolition experts, but they do have people who have worked with explosives to demolish other types of structures. Um, I'd have to go back and look at their roster of people. I think a few of them are interviewed in their film. They put out uh, explosive evidence experts speak out. So they do have more than just Tom Sullivan, people who are experts in explosives, as far as I know. Um, it's not a, a high percentage, I guess, but yeah, I would certainly, uh, welcome them to try to get more people in that field involved. Um, But I still think that coming from their area of expertise which is engineering and physics, they can still make uh, a pretty decent summation that, uh, yeah, the physics doesn't allow these buildings to collapse just from gravity and
0: fire. And I'll ask you a question. I asked David Chandler too in my my very first interview. um, Why isn't there more people in the engineering and architecture community uh, joining up with architects and engineers?
1: Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that um, many of them are probably still not aware of the kind of problems that have been found with the official explanations of why these buildings have collapsed. Um, I mean, we shouldn't assume that just because you know they haven't voiced support for a 9-11 truth or just the truth movement in general, that doesn't necessarily mean that they endorse the explanations given by NIST, for example, because... I mean, I have no idea how many engineers in the world have actually read the NIST report. Um, Like, I don't know. And regardless of if you agree with what they found, it it is true, I think, that people in the movement do tend to go through things like the NIST report with a a bit of a finer comb than you see with... uh, other people who maybe aren't as invested in this. Um, I mean, people like David Chandler, for example, uh, he did a lot of firsts uh, in not just the truth movement, but in terms of just analyzing the collapses uh, scientifically. He was the first one to actually measure the downward descent of the upper section of the North Tower, for example. And he found that it actually accelerates constantly through it, which nobody had done at that point. You know, Nobody who had ever looked at these building collapses had ever done that. Um, And he did that in 2008. So, you know, a full seven years went by and nobody actually thought to do a real like detailed measurement of the descent of the upper section. And that itself is a huge anomaly. So I think there are just certain things that maybe people in the engineering community aren't aware of. And then when they are made aware of it, they do tend to think, well, yeah, even if they're not convinced of demolition, they do seem to think that Reinvestigating or re-analyzing how these buildings came down is warranted. Like, I do think they want to, they don't consider the debate resolved. They actually want to know more about how these buildings may have come down or may not have come down. Mm.
0: You know, there's, there was also, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this too, in 2019, mm-hmm. there was a draft report by researchers at the University of Alaska Fairbanks led by Leroy Halsey, uh, following a four-year computer modeling study, which was funded by architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth, in which their findings contradict those of the National Institute of Standards and Technology, otherwise known as NIST, which concluded in a 2008 report that World Trade Center 7 was the first tall building ever to collapse primarily due to fire. Can you give a fuller explanation regarding the study and what they found?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm probably not the best person to talk about the findings of it. Um, It's a pretty deep in-depth study. I think it did find a lot of things that uh, we had sort of noted previously. Things like how there were certain construction uh, details that NIST seemed to not give an accurate reading of. For example, the, uh, the sort of plate stiffeners or the flange stiffeners that were located on the beam connected from uh, column 79 to column 44 that they claim had to have been pushed off of its seat to initiate the collapse. Uh, That was a really, really bizarre omission from the NIST report um, and seemed to contradict their assertion that that failure of that beam could have caused or could have initiated the collapse. And that's something that I know they do highlight in the report. Um, I think there's a lot of problems with the NIST report on building seven. And I don't think, I I think the the Holsey report is is useful for looking at all these problems. They do a good job of highlighting all the issues with the NIST report. I don't think the case for that building being demolished is uh, that it rests on the Holsey report. I think we can establish that even without it. Um, And there's, uh, you know, areas that we need to reinvestigate regardless, even if the report wasn't made, we need to reinvestigate uh, Building 7's collapsed because, yeah, there's a lot of problems with the NIST report on Building 7 still.
0: Yo, as a, I want to ask you a follow-up to that, too. Would NIST, okay. would NIST also be in the same light as, say, the nine eleven Commission final report, where basically not everything in it was right, but not everything in it was wrong? Uh, what was it about the NIST report that was wrong about World Trade seven?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I totally agree. Like, I don't reject any of the NIST reports in their entirety. You know, they certainly get a lot of stuff right that they sort of, I think, couldn't couldn't avoid getting right because they have to describe the buildings correct in, in some manner. Um, but I would say a lot of things that are highlighted by researchers have to do with, one, uh, the construction of the building is not described correctly by NIST. Uh, one of the other things people have pointed out uh, this is first discovered by uh, Chris Sarns, who investigated this mm. back in 2008. Um, NIST, in their draft report, talked about how one, one of the things that led to Building 7's collapse was that the um, floor, uh, the floors lacked, or at least uh, floor 13, where the collapse is supposed to have started, uh, lacked uh, shear studs, which are, you know, basically these studs that tie the concrete floor slab to the, uh, the steel beams. But then in their final report, they changed the wording a bit where they tried to say that um, there were no shear studs in many of the core girders and beams. But the problem is that the beam that they talked about failing was technically not a core girder. It was located in the eastern region of the building connected from column 79 to column 44. Um, and I believe they also found uh, construction documents that showed that yes, there would have been shear studs installed on that floor. So, it, you know, they're basically saying that the construction is really what they cite as one of the reasons the building collapsed. Like they don't actually say that the fires themselves were particularly extraordinary. In um, their report actually in, uh, in, I think it's Table 8-1 of NC Star 1-9, Uh, they do a comparison of Building 7 to other skyscrapers that have uh, been on fire, like the First Interstate Bank and the One Meridian Plaza. And the reason I think they compared it to those buildings is because those were also uh, core and perimeter structures, like uh, Building 7 and the towers were. Not exactly the same, but, you know, the same general outline of construction. And they actually do say in their report that the fires in those buildings, which, again, didn't collapse from fire, That the fires in those buildings were uh just as severe and probably more severe than the fires in building seven so what they do in their report is try to say that there were uh, specific uh things about the construction that led to the collapse of the building things like the lack of shear studs um and, and things of that sort so it's they're trying to like cite specific things that if these things had been in place um the building may not have collapsed it's, it's sort of similar to their statement in their report on the towers that what really contributed to the fires causing collapse was that the plane impacts dislodged the fireproofing. And they say that if the fireproofing had not been widely dislodged, the buildings probably would not have collapsed. So they seem to find things like they say like, oh, well, if it had this, yeah, they probably would not have collapsed. Um, and the key thing is to look into, well, is that actually true? Like, did, you know, the buildings actually lack the components they needed to stay up, or is it possible that they were still in place, and so by NIST's own reasoning, the building should not have collapsed.
0: Right, okay, and, and also to follow up on that as well, uh, debunkers will basically say, well, if NIST is basically biased because they want to push uh, a level of the state's narrative, well then the Leroy Halsey report would be biased because they're funded by architects and engineers, what would you say to that?
1: Yeah, when it comes to this question of like the motivations, I don't usually like to describe that. I, I really want to focus on just like the science and the data itself, because it could be that, yeah, it could be that NIST is completely biased, that they're at the beck and call of their masters at the government. Um, that still doesn't mean that anything they actually say in their report is wrong. Like you actually have to look at the science of what they say. Now, I will say some of that is compromised by the fact that, um, A lot of their conclusions are based on computer models and the computers and the inputs themselves have not really been made accessible to other people. So it is a little harder to gauge how accurate their results are without being able to look directly at it, which to their credit, the Holsey report, they did release all of their input data for people to look at. So I think they were at least a little more open in that regard. So I think they deserve some some credit on that in that regard. Um,
0: I'm a little bit more surprised at him as well by the 9/11 Truth Movement in not, I guess, publishing the Halsey report as much as they should. Because I remember before it even it came out, there was big talk about this report that was going to come out, and then when it did, it didn't really gain as much fanfare online. I, you know, is that is that what you thought as well, or did you did you see differently?
1: Um, I mean, I didn't see it as much. Now, granted, I am not as active in the movement as before. Right, so okay. it's maybe it's maybe harder for me to gauge that. Um, but yeah, from what I've seen, it didn't quite gain as much fanfare. And maybe that's due to the fact that I don't know that it gained a whole lot of traction in the engineering community in general. Um, I would like to see them push it more to like take it to more uh, I guess like engineering conferences. I think they did a little bit of that, but you know it'd be good for them to do that, to maybe publish um, maybe like a, a summary of findings in a, in a peer reviewed journal, for example, of the report, like a, a shorter condensed version. That would be great for them to do. Um, I don't know why they haven't, but I think that would be
0: a good thing for them to do. I think I know why too. And this is a direction uh, um, that we're going to go into now. It's a direction that we both share a common investment in as of the last couple of years. Um, it seems we have a common antagonist in Craig McKee, uh, <laughs> author of truthandshadows.com, who has many, many made many ridiculously bad takes, specifically what took place at the Pentagon in Shanksville on September 11, 2001. You have published a paper entitled Lying for 9-11 Truth on the Pentagon and the Deceptions of Craig McKee back in 2014. Can you talk more about this for our audience, about how you came to uh, write this paper?
1: Yeah, so I, I can't recall exactly how I even uh, came across Craig McKee and his writings. I think back then he was just starting to get some traction in the truth movement, because I had never heard of him before then. I don't think. Right. But, uh, but I was involved in some uh, groups on Facebook, like truth movement, Facebook groups, and somebody had posted a link to his uh, articles I recall. And it just contained a lot of the standard arguments you hear about why a plane couldn't have hit the Pentagon. And uh, it cited that movie, I believe, called uh, New Pearl Harbor.
0: Um, By Massimo Mazzucco, right? Right, yeah.
1: So, um, and I read it and I immediately was catching all the errors in it. And So on my own personal blog, I wrote basically a rebuttal to his his paper or his article on his site which uh, was not well received by him and his, uh, his followers on on the site. Um, and then it was like a year or two later, he was promoting this article again and did not correct uh, a mistake that I had cited in it, where the film talked about how the, uh, the white blur you see in one of the frames of the, the infamous five frame video hmm. of the Pentagon strike, that the film was saying how that white blur you see is the edge of the plane. And I pointed out, no, that's not the edge of the plane. You can actually, if you look closely, you can see the actual plane and that the white trail is following it, that it's uh, appears to be smoke coming out of one of the engines, either because it was damaged from hitting one of the light poles or as Ken Jenkins suggested, uh, like some like leaves and debris got caught in the engine and was burning it up and causing the trail behind it. And I I pointed all this out and uh, because I had explained this to Craig and he was still promoting this thing and he had not corrected his article. And I kept asking him, why don't you correct this? You know, this is not true. I explained why it's not true. And he kept going into all these uh, excuses for why he wasn't going to fix it. And he eventually even denied that he made that claim in the first place. And then I you know, cited his own article to him and said, no, you did. Here's the passage where you say it. Um, And then he said, oh, well, I I guess I forgot or or something. Like we got into a whole big back and forth on Facebook. It was really frustrating. And to this day, he has still never corrected that article. Like, Like I've explained to him why what he says in there is not true. And he just won't fix it. And he, to me, means that he has no problem Uh, this is why I, I describe him as lying because he, I've explained to him why it's not true and he knows it's not true, but he doesn't want to correct it. He has no problem with his readers still seeing this and being misled by it. And that really, really gets to me. Um, I, I, you know, he's had all the time in the world to fix that. Uh, I know that his old site got taken down and then he made a new version of it. That would have been a great time to update that article. He still didn't do it. I don't know. He's a very, very frustrating person to deal with. I've had a lot of uh, heated run ins with him. Um, And whether you're a truther or a debunker, if you're not getting the facts right about 9 11, uh, I mean, it's one thing if you're getting it wrong just because you're not as informed about it, but he is informed about it. And so, yeah, that's why I don't think it's wrong to say that he's lying about this because I don't know what other conclusion to come to.
0: Right. And you know why? You also published a follow-up paper just recently this year to McKee as well
1: yeah because originally when I wrote my responses to him it was like in three different blog posts and I kind of just decided well um uh, let's let's I put them all together into one paper so that right. people can see like the whole thing I was actually uh, kind of <laughs> inspired to write it sort of like or re-inspired to like write that up because I had seen uh, your critique of um, his arguments from uh, the uh, 9-11 con that uh, Richard Gage had recently hosted. Uh, I hadn't seen that before then, but when I watched that, I was pretty astounded and upset at the claims he was making because they're so blatantly wrong and fallacious and and, and also just old. Like these are arguments that have been debunked uh, a million times over and he just acts like they haven't been debunked.
0: Yeah, you know, not to harp on Craig McKee here, but um, I think the reason why we've become so critical of people like him is because we share a common aspect in that we wanna see the, the truth movement, actually right the ship, so to speak, because these people have taken uh, the forefront and they become the popular uh, voices uh, of the time being. In that, uh, I've always believed that people like yourself and David Chandler and Ken Jenkins uh, John Wyndham uh, always should have been that face of the 9-11 truth movement, the rational voices of the scientific community and the rational voices of the geopolitical uh, movement as well involved with 9-11. Um, but they've taken almost like this backseat to it and allowed the fringe irrational uh, elements to um, become the forefront. And the media, you know, they play right into it. And this is something that we're trying to dispel as well, because the media are jumping all over this interview, interviewing uh, people like John Lear and Morgan Reynolds and Kevin Barrett, and right. basically, you know, ignoring, you know, there's a reason why they cut off that uh, interview with Stephen Jones years ago, mm-hmm. but these are the people that we should basically be interviewing. Uh, but instead they're being ignored. And there's like this concerted effort to show that the nine limit truth movement, dare they question the, the government's narrative, and ask for more information, that they're all in the same boat as these fringe conspiracy theorists led by people like Alex Jones and Jim Fetzer. Is that something that uh, persuades you to be more critical to people in the truth movement?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, like I said, writing at the debunkers blog really gave me a great, I think before I had joined there, I, like I said, probably had... Um, some of these tendencies that you see from these uh, more fringe people to be sort of uncritical and apply sloppy methodology, but writing there it really gave me a chance to kind of hone my skills in researching this. And uh, the lesson that I really took away from it was you gotta try as hard as you can to critically evaluate both sides equally. Um, you know, you you gotta be able to look at this stuff. As you know, dispassionately as you can. I know for something like this, that's really hard to do, but uh, we should at least try. And the thing that I I really hate the most from people like Craig McKee, because I see this from him a lot, is he has this just awful tribalist mindset hmm. that he will go after people like David Chandler and Wayne Costey because. In his words, they're acting like debunkers. You know he said things like they, you know they've gone full debunker because they're trying to show that a plane did hit the Pentagon. No, what they're doing is they're trying to evaluate the evidence wherever it leads. And we cannot have this mindset that he seems to have that just because it comes from the mouth of a debunker, it therefore must be wrong, which is not the case at all. What I've learned is that, in evaluating what the debunkers are saying, that means being able to acknowledge when they get something right. And they do, you know, it's not just because they're debunkers, they, it, that means they're wrong. There is stuff they've have been right about. And we can't, we can't get into this, like, and it's something I hate about it in general, that between truthers and debunkers became this kind of us versus them mentality, which I wish it didn't have to be. Um, I don't see the debunkers as being like the enemies of the truth movement. Mm-hmm. That's, not, that's not how I look at it. I, I don't agree with them for the most part. I think the conclusions that we come to are ultimately going to not be in agreement. But I try to look at the debunkers as just other 9-11 researchers, just on the opposite side of the spectrum. But I don't, I don't consider them the enemies of the truth movement. The only people that I think of as the enemies in this whole situation are the people that actually carried out the attacks, whoever they are, you know, they, they're the actual enemies in all this. The debunkers are people that we don't agree on or agree with on, but I do see them as, for the most part, people who are trying to research 9-11 uh, and just coming to different conclusions.
0: Um, right,
1: and I, right.
0: right, this is a war that I, I consider like, I, to me, it's a two-pronged war. One's a, a war uh, that is uh, invaluable and one is a war of a waste of time. And I, I, I uh, condense it as like this: we have a war for of a war for information, information that we're trying to get and obtain from the federal government, which are not too keen on releasing information. And also the less important war, and that is a war of disinformation, dispelling it, which is coming from uh, mainly the fringe elements of the truth movement as well as um, certain elements of the debunkers as well. Uh, and it's basically just uh, you know wasting resources and time regarding the more careful researchers such as yourself in that um if we just concentrated as a coordinated effort instead of a you know divisive issue a divisive two pronged issue, uh, we probably could get uh, more what we, uh, what we've got now, which is basically uh, these fringe elements who are basically getting nowhere after 21 years. And I'm afraid this is exactly, uh, going in the same route as JFK, for example, where 65 years later, we are nowhere closer to the truth than now. Is that something, is that something that you share as well?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, I've, I don't know at this point if a new investigation will happen, Obviously, I think like you feel that the more and more time goes on, it seems like it gets less and less likely um, for a number of reasons, uh, you know, not just like the kind of waning interest of people in, in the topic, but, you know, the fact that evidence is not going to be around forever and might, uh, you know, become lost or contaminated or whatever, and then we can't find the results no matter what we do. Um, I still think, I mean, the reason that I still talk about this is because even if we don't get a new investigation, I still think it's important that people get the correct facts about what happened that day. Hmm. You know, we shouldn't, we should not let history be distorted and people should know what happened back then. And also as a way to, um, sort of prepare ourselves, uh, for what may happen later on. Uh, what I've said is that if we don't get a new investigation, then the best thing that we can then do is to arm ourselves with at least a proper methodology to um, evaluate events that may happen and, you know, maybe even work to prevent like the next 9-11s from happening. Um, I think that's a very important thing that we all need to do because so much changed after that happened and you see the impact it had on not just America, but the entire world. And I really do hope that the lesson a lot of people can take from that is We've, we've got to look at these events more critically. We've got to go through this stuff with a finer comb and, and not just kind of brush it off as something that happened, You know that something terrible is going to occasionally happen. And we just have to accept that's the way it is. Uh, we need to be more aware of this stuff and we need to be able to, um, again, if not get justice, at least make, make sure people are better informed so that we can work to prevent these things from happening in the future.
0: Sure. You know what I would, I do want to get your thoughts on like I cuz I hear it all the time that we need a new investigation to 9/11 in which you know I am fully behind that but you know in your opinion what would that new investigation look like and who would it be carried out by?
1: Well, I don't I don't have an exact outline of how it'd be done. I do think that um, if it was go- if there was going to be a new investigation, if there was like a tribunal, I think it should be an international tribunal, because like I just said, this really affected the entire world and still affects the entire world. Um, it's hard to, I mean, it can't, I don't think it can just be in the hands of people within the US, for example. I think we need to get potentially other uh, countries from other, you know, other agencies from other countries in, invested and involved in this. Um, from there, I, I'm not exactly sure what shape it would take. I think there's other people that would be probably better at, you um, you know, getting a grasp of how to go about investigating it. I think the main thing is that with the investigations that have been carried out so far, uh, there needs to be better access to whatever information that they had access to. Like I had said, uh, NIST computer inputs, like having direct access to the computer inputs they used, Um, things like the evidence that the 9-11 Commission had evident access to. There was a lot of things that they were able to get access to that we don't have. Uh, they reference it in the in the commission report that that what they use, but we don't have access to that. And um, I think that just a more free access to the information and evidence is what we would need, and given to um, other independent investigators who uh, are able to analyze this stuff more closely.
0: So, Adam, uh, you know, I would love to get your thoughts about what, where do you see the truth movement, the 9-11 truth movement, going today? And what would you change about it in, in the direction it needs to go in the future, if any?
1: Sure. Um, I've, I've given my thoughts on this before. Uh, it's specifically with, because again, it's what I've looked into the most, like investigating the collapse of the towers. Um, recommendations I've made is there needs to be a more, I think, consorted effort on the part of people like uh, a 911 Truth to get more people from the scientific and engineering community to look into this. Um, one thing I would really like to see them do is maybe make more of an effort to get, uh, papers on this topic published in engineering journals. Mm. Um, that's something I would like to see a lot more of now. Some of them have, you know, people like Tony Sambodi and, uh, people like Stephen Jones, obviously in his group and others have done that. And I think that's great, but I, I just can't help but think about the fact that, um, you know, AE911 Truth has over 3,000 members now, and, and I always give the example of if just 100 of them each tried to publish a paper in a journal, um, I'm sure some of them would be rejected, but a lot of them probably wouldn't be, and they could probably get more papers in journals. And, you know, that's that's how you get the attention of uh, the wider academic and scientific community by publishing in journals or going to conferences, which they, again, they've done a little bit of too. Um, But I'd like to see more of that because that's how you participate really in the wider conversation about what happened to those buildings is you try to reach out more um, and you publish in a format that can be properly reviewed and vetted by other experts in the field. So I'd like to see more of that go on.
0: And, what about you, Adam? What about you as a person? Are you more, uh, would, you, would you be more active now than ever because uh, there is this lull in the truth moment or do you wish to remain uh, independent outside or are you not interested in 9-11 at all?
1: Well, I'd certainly say, I'm, it's not that I'm not interested at all. I'm always gonna be interested. I'm always gonna care about this topic very deeply. Um, I uh, I know back in, in 2017, I had posted something on my old blog where I kind of basically said I was retiring from the movement, and, I, and that's still kind of the case now. I do pop in occasionally to do what I can. Uh, I'm certainly not as active as I once was because I do think that, yeah, at some point the movement did kind of hit a wall, I think. I think at some point the momentum was kind of lost, and it's been in a lull ever since then. I'd like to see something happen that could potentially get the energy back in the movement. Um, you know, it's, it's often said that the movement peaked in 2006 with that, you know, big rally in New York where you had like thousands of people, uh, you know, demonstrating in the streets. And I think that might be kind of true. I don't think there was ever as big a demonstration back then. Um, but what I kind of felt like in 2000, in 2008, I felt like we kind of got the second wave of the truth movement in the form of uh, uh, possibly like the academic aspect of it. You know, that was the first year that um, we were getting papers published in journals besides the Journal of 9-11 Studies. And for a while, that's kind of where I had my, my hopes set. I kind of thought, well, maybe the activist aspect of the movement is kind of waning, but maybe this is the the time when the more academic aspect of it is going to come into play and maybe that will be you know the way that we will ultimately get a new investigation now unfortunately i think even that's kind of waned uh, a little bit so I, i don't know i think something needs to happen to kind of reinvigorate either one or both of those aspects the activist aspect and the academic aspect Um, to kind of galvanize people to take a bigger interest in it. I'm not sure what that could be, but if that did happen, uh, I would uh, happily be right there with everybody um, trying to participate. Um, As it is now, I'm trying to, like I said, pop in and do what I can when I can, but I can't say that I'm really very activist at this point in it. Um, You know, I devoted over a decade of my life to this, and and I certainly – support the cause no matter what but i also try to be realistic and know that um there's times when you maybe need to understand that yeah this may not happen and you should try to enjoy your life as much as you can uh, and not let it just consume your life otherwise you're going to destroy yourself in the process
0: sure but you know i don't i don't usually say this to many of my guests but i would love to see you become more active i think you're uh, an invigorating and very intelligent voice within the truth movement, and one that is desperately needed now more than ever. And, um, you know, that's just my opinion. I, I would like to see more of Adam Taylor than I'd say more of Craig McKee, for example.
1: Well, um, I'll, just, I'll just add that I think another thing just to keep in mind is I think if, if I had more of an outlet as well to get the word out, I probably would. But the thing about me is, yeah, I'm I'm just one guy, and uh, I I've kind of expressed some frustration with a 911 Truth. Um, I, I think a lot of what they've done is really good, but you know, like I said, there's other things they could they could be doing that's better. But you know, like I said, I'm just one person, and I'm not gonna change their minds. Uh, and and they have an audience that I don't have, so it's a little harder for me to get the word out uh, without having like
0: proper outlets like they do. Adam Taylor, contributing author to uh, scientificmethod911.org and ae911truth.org. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you very much for having me, Adam.